BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. This episode is brought to you by Harris Resort SoCal. Nestled against a rolling hillside and just down the road from Palomar Mountain, Guests at Harris Resort SoCal can expect gorgeous views, friendly staff available night and day to encourage everyone to have a great time. When I was there recently, I had a chance to dine at California's first and the nation's largest house kitchen. And it's true, the beef wellington and sticky toffee dessert are great. The restaurant is inspired by the hit TV show and features a menu approved by the Michelin star celebrity chef, Gordon Ramsay himself. Hope to see you all at Harris Resort SoCal in 2024. I'm Nam Kim, professor of anthropology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I'm also the uh, current director for the Center for Southeast Asian Studies here on campus. Uh, I'm an archaeologist by trade, although I've delved into different um, career opportunities and professional opportunities over my life. Um, But that's what I do at the moment. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today, comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over the world. I want to shout out uh, Phong Nguyen, uh, the author of The Bronze Drum, for the warm introduction uh, to bo- for both of us, um, as well as mention that he reached out to you as he was researching The Bronze Drum, and that's why we're here today. So thank you so much, Phong, for um, the introduction. Phong contacted me a, a couple of years back when he was uh, starting to do research for his project, and it's it's wonderful to see the uh, the fruition of that project, and uh, I'm so happy that he made this introduction. It's it's a privilege for me to be here today talking to you. My mind was humming when he said that there was a Vietnamese archaeologist that helped him on the book. I was like, I have to have you on the podcast, you know. <laughs> so thank you, Nam. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's it's my pleasure. Absolutely, my pleasure. So. What does it mean to be Vietnamese? I think that there's a special context here for you because um, of your heritage. Yeah, that's a, that's a very complex question for me for a couple of different reasons. Uh, I, the obvious one, the elephant in the room is, you know, my, my last name is Kim, which is essentially the Smith of, of Korea. Um, so m- most people, when they see my name, they might be curious about Nam, but with the Kim, they're thrown. Um, my, my ancestry is, is mixed. So I, I, I kind of consider myself, uh, you know, for lack of a better way of looking at it, uh, a mutt of Cold War ancestry. Cold so War. my father, yeah, Cold War. Like my parents should not have met, right? Um, my father grew up in the Korean Peninsula, my mother in the northern part of Vietnam. This is, um, you know, early, mid 20th century. 
these are two people that under normal circumstances probably never would have met. But because of conflicts that were happening related to the Cold War, the end of World War II, resistance against outside powers, all this stuff that was happening um, in the Korean Peninsula, as well as in Vietnam, their lives were severely altered because of all that. And they found themselves being pushed away from their, their you know, places of birth, their ancestral homelands. And then eventually they find each other. And this is, you know, in the 1960s. And so this chance meeting between the two of them led to me and to my brothers and to a completely new life, um, also affected by conflict, because we probably shouldn't be in the United States either, if not for conflict. So when, you, when we ask that question about Vietnamese, for me, it's a very complex one from that standpoint, because I'm an American, I'm Korean, I'm Vietnamese, I'm of mixed ancestry, and it kind of is fluid, this identity, when and where it's used and how. And, and growing up, did you struggle with sort of identifying that or was it a smooth for you? Uh, I wouldn't say it was smooth. No, this was something that because my, my parents and I, we, we came when I was a year old and we came to this country as refugees. Um, probably we were learning to be American at the same time. And that kind of identity was, was a little bit interesting for me to figure out as well. So as a child, I was constantly told you are Korean or you are Vietnamese and it depended on who I was talking to. Right. Um, people in the Korean American community here would tell me when I was a kid, your dad's Korean. So you're Korean. You just, you need to remember that. And, you know, then, then there was the other side of that equation. And then there was that my own struggle as, as a, an immigrant, as an American uh, adopted. This is my adopted country. And I've been here since the age of one. So I haven't known anything else. Yeah. To have that kind of mixture. Um, I remember in, in my childhood, I, I was learning English from Sesame Street. Same time my parents were learning English. I remember going to kindergarten and using probably a mixture of all three languages thinking, well, this is how everybody talks, right? But no, <laughs> not everybody in kindergarten spoke Korean and Vietnamese. Um, so it was, it was a, a struggle from the beginning. But as I got older, it also became a, a sense of, of pride to have that diverse background, that multicultural background, and to know that my parents lived through really tough times, some hardships. And that we were still going through that as as first generation immigrants in this country um all of that got mixed up in this yeah. this notion of identity sorry that was a very long-winded answer but no 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 i mean here, that's what we're here for but can, can you imagine that there's people today that are struggling to survive war-torn situations the same scenarios that our parents are going through or went through back in the 70s. There's like people traveling, trying to get across borders today and resettling and doing all this crazy shit that yeah. we, we think, you know, that was done. That was like in the 70s, it's no more. But this is happening constantly throughout history. Yeah. Isn't that mind boggling? Mind boggling. It is. Mind boggling. Um, How can this continue today? You know, the, 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 the kind of funny thing about that question is it's kind of tied up with my own sort of passion and intellectual motivation. 
So the reason I, I'm, I'm doing what I do now, the reason I'm in academia and I do research has to do with certain questions that I had, interests that related to conflict. Why is it that we fight? Mm. What, what motivates people to participate in these organized forms of violence, right? On, on different scales, whether we're talking about at the scale of the nation or the state or in smaller scale societies, um, what is it about these behaviors and how it affects us? And also, when did it start? How far back does it go? Are we doomed to be like this forever? That's what got me into my studies. And, you know, it's interesting to think about even just last year, right? When we talk about uh, Kabul and the imagery that was coming out of that area, um, it was very strangely reminiscent to what was happening in Saigon, you know, in 1975. And I, I remember reading about it, seeing some of the video footage and the photographs, hearing some of the stories, they were heart-wrenching. And my parents, I remember asking them about this and they said, this, this feels the same. like what we went through. You know, obviously we're not there, we don't know what's going on, but it feels like that. It, it brings back all of these memories. And you, you point this out, this is decades later, different part of the world, different set of circumstances, different culture, society all together, but it's still a human story. It's still happening. Um, now, the sobering part about that is as an archaeologist who studies the past and who studies you know, societies and warfare in the past, we see not the same movie, but we see elements of that that have been playing for, for a very long time. But you know, Nam, I, I have factions in my family that are really warlike amongst each other and mm. they will go at it in ways that are, you could see at, on the micro level, just a human inability to squash issues and yeah. they just go at it. And there's no way I can reform them or have them see Hey guys, this is like, like on a thousand year spectrum, like whatever you guys are arguing about is like dust particle. It means nothing to the greater, why are you engaging in this waste of time? And it's yeah. like, it's just programmed into their sort of like, and it's not a cultural thing. It's just, I think a human thing. And for you to yeah. say that you study, you know, will this ever end? I am curious to what you think, what have you found? I mean this pattern of fighting. Yeah, that's, that's the big question. Um, I, I, for me, for the longest time, it was how far back it goes. Uh, and, and the more I studied it, the more I realized that's not the, the biggest question. The biggest question is, will it ever end? Can it end? Um, to answer the first question, the materials that, that I've seen, the records that we have access to, Beyond the historic horizon, if we're talking about the material remains of past human societies, um, we can see it going very far back. And my, my own in, 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 intuition, my sort of view on this, and this is work that I've been doing. I, I have been remiss not to mention my, my colleague, Mark Kissel. We have been publishing about this. So we have a book, actually, that discusses this particular question. Um, our view is, as soon as we became human, we were capable. Because you kind of intimate when you talk about your family, it's a human thing, right? To have agreement and disagreement. 
it's a human thing to try to find ways to work together, to collaborate. But sometimes we don't agree on how to do things. And sometimes that can lead to arguments or debate, maybe even outright conflict, and maybe even violence. And humans are very creative in how they devise their sort of views. So we might be looking at the same set of facts. So we might look at the same object and have completely different ideas about how to describe it or interpret. That leads to differences of opinion. And I think that as soon as we became able to articulate those differences, as soon as we became able to identify different groups and identities, the potential for conflict had always been there. And for us, it's not really a matter of peace and war, conflict and cooperation. For us, war is a form of cooperation. It instills mm, a sense of identity, right? It, it binds people together. There's a common cause. And we're all rallying around this particular cause, whether it's the nation state, whether it's the gods are asking for it, or whether it's family honor, whatever you want to say. As soon as we became human, we had cultural symbols and ideas, and we could communicate. And we could, we could rally people around. There's a sense of camaraderie and community around this. So in a sense, it is very much a cooperative behavior. When we started to cooperate in complex ways, I think that's when war starts. That, that other question about when it, it stops, can it stop? I think the first answer gives us some inkling of hope for the second question. Because if we recognize it that way, and if, then we're saying... We're not biologically doomed to behave this way. We have tendencies, sure, but we also created institutions that promote forms of interaction, sometimes violent ones. We can unmake these institutions or we can change them. We can change our views about things. And so there's some hope. I don't think there's ever going to be complete eradication of, of war, but you can change the circumstances um, to make it less likely. And there's a sort of compartmentalized, I think, a compartmentalizing war now. I think uh, I'm trying to put my thoughts together as you're saying. So maybe this whole idea of uh, national identity or war for profit are separate. And the people, hmm. the soldiers on the ground that are holding the guns are kind of just operationally at their job. And then the people at the very top government are just planning logistics and really working in the interest of, you know, they're not really, you know, it, it, it's just kind of like their job description for the last 30 years being in the DOD or yeah. Right. It's like, it's, there's no connection to, to re and then there's a department of marketing to kind of push out the propaganda mm -hmm. that we should go to war with this other group of people. So it's all compartmentalized yeah, yeah. where the feeling of like going to war to Americans, you know, back in World War II is so different from us going to Afghanistan or, you know, the way we think about Ukraine. It's so compartmentalized. So it's all disconnected today in modern society. So war is not the same as war, you know, the first world war uh, that the U.S. up to, you know, uh, engage in. I don't know. That's yeah. just a thought of that I have. Yeah. I, I, I think there's a lot, there's a lot in that, in that, in what you just said. Uh, I like the way you, you characterize it. It is compartmentalized. It, it is something that involves so many disparate groups of people yeah. who have different functions, different roles, motivation. different levels of involvement, yeah. different motivations, absolutely, and different 
sorts of consequences. Yeah. You know, for, for some, if you are very detached from all of that, you just make decisions. It might be a very serious decision to make. It might take a lot of debate and, and coaxing to get people to go down that path, but you're not going to be on the front lines. Totally. And, and I think it's, it's a different experience. And as an American, yeah. we, we have these privileges of kind of analyzing war that way. But like, if you're Ukrainian, you're not thinking about war that the same. It's not compartmentalized. You're, it's not like a battleground. You're, you're, you're bo- your building's getting yeah. bombed. Yeah. So it's complicated. Yeah. 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 So, so yeah. Actually, if you don't mind, I, I got, I wanted to ask you about this yes. because I, I, I know a little bit about your background and I want to thank you for, for your service to, to our country. Um, as a, as a person who has served, what what are your thoughts about war and how it, how much of it is ingrained in us in in us biologically or culturally? I think if you look so at if, if you were to be asked the same question, yeah, yeah, I think if you look at the um, soldiers and military men that join, typically they're under twenty five. Mm-hmm. Majority are under twenty five. And your brain hasn't really formed an opinion yet. You haven't really understood the world in a bigger picture yet. And I'm not talking, there's different ranks, right? There's officer ranks and there's enlisted ranks. For the most part, the enlisted ranks, the 90% of men in the enlisted ranks, which is not the commanding class, the the the, the body yeah, of yeah. soldiers, which was what I was in, are not really thinking about the political implications. So when you're going through it for four years or eight years of your, in your twenties, predominantly young men, they're not thinking about it. They're just, they're marching according to their orders. And you know, there are semi propaganda ways of looking at, um, you know, the, the mission ahead. And then when you get out, you know, what I've learned is, you know, a lot of my veteran buddies, um, still stick to the party line, but a lot of them that move on and go to college, and that's when a different type of indoctrina- indoctrination happens. So for somebody mm. like me who's willing to, you know, we're, we're going to talk about the study of anthropology in a little bit. But because I was an anthro major and I studied anthropology and, you know, went through sort of like this ethnographic uh, way of looking at every situation. So I formed different opinions. Um, I understand, I think different wars have different purposes, different outcomes, different military branches have different outcomes and different service uh, type um, service members have different jobs. And so it's nothing is really black and white. Um, and if you yeah. look at my history, I was just a guy, you know, I was very, you know, obviously still has to do their, they have to do their physical duty. And we, you know, we still get up every day to train and do, you know, and, and we go into the field, you know, but as an admin person, I was, you know, um, my function was to back up the company commander on on writing letters and you know taking care of his admin stuff along with the guys in my office. So it's you know you're just plugged into different roles and you see different things um, from that perspective. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that really speaks to the, the the layers and layers of complexity. Yeah, when it comes to what we see happening in in our world today especially with larger states, um, there, there is that kind of detached participation. And it, it's just by, by nature of the way that our organizations are designed, right? Um, in, in certain cases, 
and, and this this might apply for other kinds of communities um, or in, in smaller scale societies of the deeper past, that kind of remote detachment wasn't possible for a lot of people, right. especially right. if the front lines are right, you know, they're in your backyard. In your backyard. Um, it's a different way of thinking. Yeah. You're defending your people, your mom, your, your, your baby. You're, you're defending it in a different way. Exactly. But exactly. now we're and you might have political views. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. You might have political views or you might be completely devoid of them, but it doesn't matter because it's happening around you anyway. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm guessing we'll get into this a little bit later, but that, that, that was really what struck me when I heard my father talking about his experiences uh, with the Korean conflict and everything that was leading up to that in, in the 1940s and, and 1950s, because it, it was almost like a sea was just surging with storms around his, his little island that he called his hometown. And they might not have had any idea of what was going on on a bigger geopolitical scale, right? They don't know how big the storm is or anything like that. They might not even have any ideas yeah. about what the ideological kinds of perspectives might have been uh, and the political motivations for the conflicts. But all they knew was what was happening right there on the ground. Before we do a deep dive into your work with uh, ancient Vietnamese history and war and all this stuff, can we talk about the the different branches of anthropology? Because I think that understanding sort of like the framework, it's important. And I've always thought that the different branches are so important to understand because it gives us a framework on how civilization has really unfolded, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so this is not the case uh, everywhere. But in, in, in the U.S., for anthropology, we are talking about a few different subfields. At, on the surface, the umbrella is we're interested in humans. We're interested in human culture, human societies. And the different subfields approach their questions, their methods, how we gather data and analyze and all of that a little bit differently. There's a kind of diff there's a different set of foci, right? Um, you know, cultural anthropologists will use ethnography. They'll study recent or current uh, societies. Um, biological anthropologists or physical anthropologists study um, human evolution. So changes in our species, our ancestors, what maybe primate, primate data might tell us about human behavior in the past and now. Uh, ongoing changes, actually, even within our species. The archaeologist is very interested in the material remains as the, the main source of data. So we're, we're interested in similar kinds of theories um, and similar kinds of, of questions regarding why certain things happen within a society, how people organize themselves, why do certain rituals take place, the origins of religious thought, anything you can think of. But we look at it from the material record. So the archaeologist is interested in all those kinds of data sets. Uh, there, there's also linguistics as well. Uh, I don't talk a, a lot about that in my work, but um, that is also one of the pillars, um, using language and reconstructions of language. Uh, it's sort of like excavation through that data set. But those would be the main subfields for anthro in, in the United States. It's amazing. Um, yeah, linguistics is often not thought, uh, like a layman doesn't think linguistics is part of the anthropology field, but it, it very much is because, you know, forensic uh, ling linguistics and finding out 
root words and where things come from. You can kind of track where people are moving and how things are kind of like blending with, with the culture. Exactly. Yeah. What are, what are Absolutely. So in the, in the present day or even tracking it back into the past, yeah. uh, in some ways you can, cor- for archaeologists, it can be very important as well because you can correlate uh, migration, ancient migration patterns and movements of people of different ethno-linguistic uh, backgrounds and try to connect them to landscapes, to sites, to artifacts, and so forth. So there, there are very interesting ways to reconstruct the past through different data. Now, why is all this stuff in anthropology so important to we? It's important to me and you because we are interested in this stuff. Why is it important to governments and other organizations? Uh, and why do they fund this kind of stuff? Um, there are so many different possibilities and reasons. Uh, I guess I can, I can speak from my own experience as an archaeologist working in Vietnam. The work that we do actually, actually. is very relevant um, for, for narratives and perspectives about, you know, about ancient history, about the foundations of, of recent and contemporary Viet identity and culture. And if we consider the, the very complex history of Vietnam, right? So, you know, this, this, actually this is related a little bit to that very first question you asked me about identity. Mm. My sense of, of Vietnamese identity is not just my own personal background, but it's also tied to what I know about the history of, of Viet culture. Um, Vietnam, as we know it today, did not exist 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, or 2,000 years ago. There's been transformation over centuries, over millennia. And, and oftentimes people ask, well, how far back does that go? Yeah. And what does the archaeology tell us about that? Um, and that, that can segue into the work that, that Feng Wynne had, had, had been doing for his novel as well and what he illustrates. It's a very complicated answer or set of answers. Um, um, with, with places and sites in Vietnam that are attached to certain kinds of narratives, to histories that have been documented, maybe even folk tales and legends, there's a very tangible set of materials and places that can be connected to imagination, national imagination. And that can be tied to feelings of identity, how people are connected or rally around something. Um, It can be tied to post-colonial independent movements. So if we think about everything that Vietnam has gone through in the last couple hundred years, right, with the French, with the Japanese, with other superpowers, resistance, independence, civil war, there has always been a sort of uh, search for previous forms of identity that can bring people together, that bind them and instill a sense of community. So how do we rally together? And fight for a common cause in, in very important ways and archaeology and those materials and histories can be incorporated, sometimes appropriated for so these kinds of agendas. What, I know this is going to be a very broad question, but <laughs> what in the timeline or when in the timeline were we actually calling ourselves Maybe not Vietnamese, but we were 
probably you know mentally extricated from the chinese or the indians or uh whatever group yeah. and said this is a standalone group of people um and i think in chinese we're known as yunnan um I, or there's there's a term yeah. that separates uh, you know yeah. chinese people from vietnamese people but when is it that we as a group of people recognized ourselves as we are like the americans the us is like 1776 we cut ourselves off from the from the british uh empire british yeah. government when did vietnamese people cut themselves off and say you know we are finally standing on our feet we are who we are we're vietnamese yeah that's a that's a tough one too i, w <laughs> I wish there was a simple answer for that um <laughs> Maybe the long, you know, the drawn out complex answer <laughs> so the, the, the analogy to American history is an interesting one because that's recent history. That's a drop in the bucket when you think about it. Um, and we have, we have records, we have texts that can pinpoint specific years, uh, specific role players, agents who are part of that change. So we can, we can rely on those kinds of, of information. When it comes to the idea of, of the Vietnamese, uh, I, I think Viet itself, if I'm not mistaken, people have talked about how it's connected to Yue, um, this this moniker. And for if if we were to look at it from the perspective of the Chinese, because we can't separate Vietnamese history from Chinese history. There's a very intimate and complex relationship <laughs> that goes back a very long time. Um, but from the perspective of, of the central plains of China. They viewed everybody to the south, and it, actually in all directions outside of the Central Plains, as the barbarian world. They were like the Romans who viewed other areas of the world as the unsophisticated people that needed our civilizing. It was, it's a common imperial trope. We, we, we have a, a mandate to come in here and educate you and tell you how to live and all this stuff and collect taxes and tribute from you as well. So... Um, I think from their perspective, all of these societies and, and in today, they're parts of Southern China, parts of Northern Vietnam. But 2000 years ago, we don't know exactly what languages were being spoken in all these areas. Wow. We know from the material record, from the archaeology, that a lot of these communities were definitely in touch with each other. They were in uh, communication. They were exchanging materials there are artifacts that are very similar there are styles of living architecture etc that show these groups of people were connected now we don't know if they viewed themselves as part of one people or if they viewed themselves as a common community or identity but we can see from the materials they're definitely in touch with each other and they're somewhat distinct from other areas like the central plains so in a way you might say well maybe that's the origin Right. So there's something like 2,500 years ago, you start to see these connections really becoming very prominent, especially in production of bronzes, for instance. So the, the title of Fong's book, The Bronze Drum, right, that's a very iconic symbol of ancient Vietnam, these sophisticated bronze products. That's from that time period, right around then and a little bit after that. Then you have this very complicated episode when the Han Empire expand southward. They come into that area around where what is Hanoi now, in that Red River Delta. 
and they annexed this part of the world. And essentially, the Chinese would stay for about a thousand years. Wow. And uh, Feng's novel talks about the, the very famous yeah. historical event, the rebellion of the Chung sisters. Um, but there were multiple sorts of re, uh, forms of resistance and integration and conflict and rebellion. You know, we go through ebbs and flows for, for centuries. It, it's after that period comes to an end in the, around the 10th century, this is with Moquin, that the Chinese are gone and there's a sort of independence that's regained. Whether or not you want to pinpoint that as the beginning point is, is debatable, but some people would argue there is a reason why they claim independence at that point is because the Viet sorts of ancestral identity, they never went away. They've always been there. And it's only here in the 10th century roughly a thousand years ago, that we see this new period of history kicking off and then the various dynasties that we know mm. of uh, coming into existence. So uh, when you ask that question, I don't have a simple answer for you. Very Anybody big. you ask might have a different idea. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of layers there. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, Vietnam today, the geographic uh, region of Vietnam today, the state didn't mm. look like that couple hundred years ago it, it's it's over the last several centuries that we see expansion and, and changes different territories becoming part of what is now vietnam I, i'm gonna make a funny statement but it's 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 almost like cousins fighting over land right like you know, <laughs> tribes of people fighting over you know pockets of land that centuries and centuries ago haven't had distinct lines yet but they're shared you know that 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 family eats this this family eats that there's a little bit of difference but they're fighting for land and they're fighting for kind of domination of like ge geography and at some point they're just like they get big enough where they can actually say well here's the line here's the boundary yeah. that forms a, a certain group, a subset of group of people, but then it goes back, they start fighting more. And then it just like this, this layering of complexity keeps happening. And yeah. over many, 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 many uh, years, uh, we finally f figured out here and today, this is Vietnam. So it sounds like yeah. a, an evolution of borders uh, to be. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's right. Uh, what's interesting to me also is what we see as Vietnam right now, I, I'm almost, I can guarantee a thousand years from now, it won't look like that. Whatever we see as Vietnam, whatever the borders are, and, and you know, the same could go with any country in the world. It is unlikely that the world borders as we know them today are going to be intact and exist a thousand years from now. If, if, if the archaeology and the history has taught us anything, is that that kind of cultural change, political change, is constant and very, very complicated. So those layers are going to keep coming, right? They're, they're not stopping. We haven't reached the end of human history. It's still going on. So fascinating. <laughs> is the subject of anthropology and all of this ancient Vietnamese origin um, research important to, to people in Vietnam and to the government of Vietnam? Um, I like to think so. I know, from, at least with the people that I, I interact with, it is very important. 
the of the example here, the field work that I've been doing in Vietnam since 2005-ish, that's when I first went back to Vietnam. Um, you know, we can talk about when I left as well at some point, but I left as a year as an infant at, a, at the age of one from Saigon. And my parents and I never thought we'd have any relationship with Vietnam after we left. You know, it, it, it was April of 75. It was the fall of Saigon, the fall of the, of the southern country. And we thought, that's it. We're never going to have any kind of interaction. And I, as a grad student, I was, I mentioned earlier, I was very interested in war. I studied it from different perspectives as an international relations major, as a political science master's student, and then eventually as an anthropologist and archaeologist. And in grad school for archaeology, I was given a choice about places to work. And one of the choices was in Europe with my advisor, other places in the world. But somebody suggested to me, think about Vietnam because of your heritage and because you have the ability to speak some of the language. There are no Americans doing any kind of archaeology that we know of. This is in the early 2000s in Vietnam. So they suggested I go, and I did. In 2005, I went just to see the possibility. Okay, can, uh, can, work, I, can I stop yeah. you right there? When you, when you make a decision like that in life as an anthropologist, as somebody who's going to go to a country, what are the exact steps that you have to take when you make that decision? You know, do you have somebody on the other side waiting for you? Do you have another, uh, like a counterpart that, that receives you with open arms and a warm welcome, balloons and festivities and say, Nam, we are so excited to have you here. Here's the money. Or is it like a, just a cold flying into the country, like jumping in off of an airplane and trying to figure out where to live and then slowly where the funding comes from, where the permission comes from. How does this logistically work in 2005? More like the latter. <laughs> Definitely more like the latter. So I, I okay, I, I was 30 when I went to grad school for anthro and archaeology. So I'd done a few things up until then. I wasn't fresh out of undergrad or a, a master's program. I'd done a few things. You were no spring chicken. I wasn't chicken. a spring chicken. Um, but part of the, the experiences I had had to do with startup work, entrepreneurial stuff in the private sector, working in Asia. So I had a sense of what that would look like. So when people presented that possibility to me, I wasn't afraid to try it. I didn't have any committee members or advisors who had any contacts or projects in Vietnam. Yeah. In fact, when I asked them, I said, okay, I'd love to go. Who should I talk to? They said, well, you've got to figure that out. You've got to figure out who's doing work in Vietnam from other countries, because there are none that we know of from this country, from the US, figure out who they are, who their contacts are, because I couldn't find a website for wow. Vietnamese archaeology or yeah. anything like that at that time. So they said, figure out what they're doing, get in touch with them. And then in concentric circles, find your way to the center, right? And that's what I did. I wasn't afraid to give that a shot. And once I started to get some contacts in Vietnam, I emailed some of the their folks at the Institute of Archaeology. This is part of the Academy of Social Sciences in Hanoi. They were so friendly. They mm -hmm. said, um, they didn't want to communicate too much over email, but they said, if you're here, come visit us at the, at the Institute and we'll talk about things. So 
I booked a flight and I went. So when you say, was there a big party and all this stuff waiting for me? I had a name and an address <laughs> and that was about it. So I went and this was in 05. I met with some folks at the Institute and I had no idea what to expect. In fact, my parents were kind of nervous about me going. This is again, given the circumstances upon which we left Vietnam, um, they weren't sure what kind of, of, of experience I was going to have. And they were a little bit concerned about it too. But um, when I got to the Institute, I met with folks and they were just extremely friendly. Once they realized I could speak the language, once they realized my mother was born in Tenghua up in the north and she had ties to different provinces in Vietnam, they knew this, this backstory because people were asking me, your name is Kim. You don't really speak with an accent when you speak Vietnamese. We expect you to be, you know, have an American accent or a Korean accent. You don't look Vietnamese either, they would tell me. Wait, you, um, speak, you speak Vietnamese fluently? I wouldn't say fluently. And at the time, it wasn't fluently. But my, my uh, the pronunciation was very good. And this is because of speaking with my mother growing up. I never took classes. I never formally mm -hmm. trained. But because it was one of my languages at home, I could hear the tones and I could pronounce the tones better than the average American might, right? So because of that, they were very surprised. And everyone, everywhere I went, people thought I was Japanese. Right. Just look, looking at me. Uh, so so it, it was, I was sort of an oddity. But once we started to break the ice and talk about my interests, why I was there, they said to me, I'll never forget this. Okay, we'll work with you on whatever you want. What, what do you want to do? What research are mm -hmm. you interested in? What site do you want to work at? And I wasn't expecting that. I was, kind of, I was sort of floored by the question. So I just said the biggest site I could think of at the time, and that was Tenkoloa. That site is located right outside of Hanoi, and it is a nationally significant site for the Vietnamese, for its history and so forth. So that popped in my head. I said, if there's any place I'd love to work, that's it, Koloa. And they said, okay, uh, we're going to introduce you to um, one of our colleagues who, who does work there. He wrote his dissertation about this site, and we'll see where that goes. So I started to meet folks. They took me out to Koloa, uh, out in, this, in the uh, countryside. And from there, everything just snowballed. They said, it, it, when you want... All you need to do is bring funding because we're, we're, we're sort of strapped for resources. But if you can raise the funding, you can come back and we'll work on whatever you like. And that's how things and, started. And how, much, yeah, and how much funding did you need or what was the projection? Um, you know, projects vary. And it kind of, our archaeological projects can vary. You, you might have a very small scale project, small excavation, or maybe not even dig at all. You might just look at artifacts and analyze them. So your budget might be very small. But for some of the things that we were proposing to collaborate on, we were looking at large scale excavations that would employ dozens and dozens of, of people um, from labor in the field to experts, to researchers, um, all, all sorts of, of roles. So, I mean, I, I don't want to get into specific numbers, but we're looking at tens of thousands of dollars to fund something like that.
uh, as an initial pilot project. And, and for a grad student, that, that's a lot. Yeah. But how do you know that there's something there? You know, you're like, hey, let me get tens of thousands of dollars. But then, because you have a hunch, I mean, how does this work? <laughs> uh, I, I wouldn't characterize it necessarily as a hunch, but it's certainly an educated guess. So um, to give you some background, the I don't know how much you know about uh, Gaulois. I know it's, nothing. It's, it's history. Okay. okay. So this is an ancient city, and it's about 15 kilometers north of downtown Hanoi. It's right across the Red River, some home. And it is tied to legendary accounts. So maybe a lot of folks might have heard of uh, Anzingbeng and the Olak Kingdom. A lot of people point to Anzingbeng as a sort of historical founder of the Vietnamese civilization, one of the key figures. According to legend, he lived in the third century BC or so. And there's a specific date that people talk about 257, 258 BC, where he purportedly overthrows a previous dynasty and establishes the Olak kingdom and builds a capital city at this site of Gaulois. There are colorful tales regarding this process. He supposedly had advice from a turtle that came out of the water, telling him how to build his defenses, his seat of power, how to um, vanquish enemies. In fact, according to these tales, the turtle gives the king one of its claws and says, use this as the trigger mechanism for your crossbow. It should be a magic crossbow that allows you to vanquish entire armies, your enemies. So in a very interesting way, this is, this is very similar to tales you might hear in other countries, like, like in the UK, for instance, with Arthurian tales of Camelot and Excalibur. This is their version of Camelot for the Vietnamese. Um, my mom told me when she was growing up, her brothers and her in school, their textbooks, they knew about Anzangbeng. This is history. This is part of the accepted conventional wisdom. Right. My, my position on this at the time was you have this site that you say is part of this kingdom. This kingdom is mentioned in some texts, but a lot of those texts uh, sort of disappeared and many of these tales weren't officially written into, into chronicles until well after the fact, maybe something like the 12th or 13th century. So much, much later. How do we know? So as a researcher, uh, how do we know what is valid, yeah. what is questionable? So I said, if we know where this site is and people connected to that history, let's find evidence. And one of the things I suggested was let's excavate some of the uh, monumental features at the site. And by that, I mean the site is connected to these earthen ramparts, these big walls made of earthen materials. The legends say that there were nine of these walls around the city. Um, if you look at the, the walls today, if you look at aerial photos and satellite images, you can see three very clearly. And what I suggested, and my colleagues agreed that this would be interesting to do, is let's excavate through one of the ramparts and see if we can find artifacts and other cultural materials to identify the builders of this ancient city. 
the time period, the construction methods, any kind of information that can give us ideas about when the city emerges and who might have been responsible. So that was how we started that project. Um, earlier, you'd asked me how it's connected to national significance and why some of these episodes might be important for people. What, while we were digging, I remember vividly, um, there were, it was a sort of dance because I was this foreigner. I might have been viewed in a different light because of my ancestry, but I was still very much an outsider. And I was a graduate student too. It wasn't like I was an established researcher with a reputation or anything like that. Um, so there were moments where I wasn't sure how things were going to go. And I was also worried that, well, we know that the Han Empire came into this area right around 100 BC. There's a textual account saying 111 BC, they annexed this area. And some people debate, maybe the Han were responsible for bringing quote unquote civilization to this area. And if that's the case, maybe they brought forms of governance, forms of bronze industries, forms of agriculture, and maybe they were the ones that built these huge monuments. Maybe they were the ones that were responsible. That wouldn't jive well with this Vietnamese perspective, right? That we were here, we had something complex, and this was here before the Han, so we predate all that. So I was a little bit nervous about that. And we had visits to the site during our excavations from the deputy prime minister of the country, from the former president of the country, who were very interested to see what we were finding. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, that's wonderful. I feel privileged, but at the same time, it's nervous. Kind of nerve wracking. Yeah, because what if we find artifacts that show maybe it was uh, the Han who were responsible for a lot of this. And then these higher ups are like, uh, guys, let's take them out and take yeah, yeah. Them back. Like this, we're stopping this right now. Right. We're gonna take it, this is done. Yeah, your visa's <laughs> done. Thank you for showing up. You can go back to, to the US now. I mean, I, I, I was nervous about that. Um, but, you know, in actuality, my colleagues uh, were and continue to be wonderful. They're researchers and they're open to different possibilities. Um, but they were, you know, they were honest with me. They said, you know, we, we have to, even, even if we find evidence that might be outside of the, 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 na the narrative that everybody accepts, that's okay. That leads to debate and stuff. But let's be careful how we present it. So in other words, if you get a call from a journalist and, and, and they ask you to give an interview, come talk to us first, you know, so that we have a sort of unified front. Because I think part of the issue too is as an outsider, I could say whatever I wanted to with the only consequence being you're not allowed to work here anymore. Right. But for my colleagues, this is their profession. This is their home. This is their community, their ancestral community. They're the descendants of this history. So, so it's so, very different. Yeah. So what did you find? What yeah. did your team find? Thankfully, <laughs> we found um, evidence that the constructions of the walls predated the arrival of the Han. We found uh, evidence of very sophisticated forms of construction, of bronze production that might have been monopolized in some way by a centralized authority, that this entire city um, was connected to some central society. It wasn't just 
free form things added here and there, you know, accretion over time. This was carefully planned. All of that for me was important because it, it, it showed us two things. One, that time period before the Han definitely saw something important, something complex. Maybe it could be the, the kingdom of Olak. Maybe Anzangbung existed. Maybe not. I, I don't comment specifically on that. But something was definitely there. And it was local and quote-unquote indigenous. The second thing was um, that you know, for, for an anthropologist and archaeologist who studies these topics of state formation and urbanism globally, oftentimes Southeast Asia is left off the table of discussion. And if when it is included, people talk about later examples like Angkor, for instance. And this is in, the, in more recent history. Here was a case in Vietnam that virtually nobody in the United States was talking about. And I mean, I didn't know that much about it. A lot of the work that had been done there had been published by the Vietnamese, had not been translated into Western scholarship, so it was difficult access. So one of the things that I wanted to, to do was to point out, well, here's another case study for us for comparative research, and it comes from Southeast Asia, and it comes from Vietnam. So uh, my, my perspective at that point was, uh, if I continue on this line of work, that's my goal, is to put it on the map. Mm. Let's bring Vietnamese history, not just recent history or, you know, history over the last thousand years into common knowledge. Let's bring the ancient past into common knowledge as well. After you dig up and you find all these things, do they like wrap plastic on it and go, okay, guys, let's put this away and let's, or do they build like a shrine or a museum or what plans do you, do they have after you excavate and find these wonderful details? Yeah, that that is completely dependent on location, the nature of the site, the country you're working in, the people you work, everything. There's so many variables with that. So I've seen everything across the board. <laughs> Some sites, you're done digging, uh, you backfill, you make careful notes, you publish the data or you record all that and you leave it in place for future researchers potentially to come back to and maybe continue investigating. Because, you know, our our technologies keep advancing. There might be uh, materials that you take out to analyze and study. They might be artifacts. They might be ecofacts, um, soil samples, archaeobotanical remains, uh, human remains, animal remains, whatever the case might be. But if, if oftentimes we don't excavate everything, mm -hmm. The site might be too large. We might not have enough time or resources, or maybe we don't have access. There could be a whole variety of, of factors. But one of the, um, the, the outcomes is you, once you've taken materials out that you need to analyze and record, you backfill and it's noted so that future archaeologists can come back and, and analyze as well. Because 10 years from now, our tools are going to be different. 20 years from now, 50 years from now, our, our methods of analysis are going to be different. We know this. We can't be conceited and say, this is it. This is yeah. the only, this is the pinnacle of analysis. No, they're going to change. We know this. So sometimes there's backfilling. Sometimes you leave sites open and you build uh, maybe a roof over it. Yeah. Maybe you build a shrine there. Some people have built entire museums around an open site. I, I so feel it like, really depends on the nature of the site. I feel like in Israel, when you go to Israel, it's 
that. It's like a bunch of things that are excavated and then they just build churches or they build museums over it. Hundreds of sites like that, I feel like is happening. That's why, yeah, I've always wondered why my trip to Israel was so important uh, because I always felt, now, I, now I'm beginning to see the... Now I'm beginning to see how um, you know there's three religions: you know, the, the the Jewish, the Judaic, uh, Christian, and Muslim. They all have so many excavation sites that built mosques or temples or churches on top of their excavated sites, and so that's what triggers me uh, when I think about um, about Vietnam. And if you're digging. The very one place that you're saying or your team is saying that this is the birthplace sort of of the the, the Vietnamese people in the the origin story, I would build a damn museum over this thing, right? But that's yeah, yeah, probably not happening. Well, there there is a there, there is a museum there. Um, the site is massive, so you you can't build a museum over yeah. the entire suspected area of the ancient city. There are people that live there now. Um, the Goloa commune is there. There are thousands of residents that live in these communities around the site. Um, and they have, people have been living here continuously for about 4,000 years. So it gets complicated because then you've got people who say, well, um, these are our, our ancestral homeland. And, and this, this is where we live. We're going to continue living here. So we have our fields here. We have our, our business here. Our families are buried here, our ancestors, etc. So you've got a, a variety of stakeholders who have different ideas about how to conserve, how to preserve that history, how to treat these landscapes, these sites, how to use them, how to exploit them economically maybe. Um, so it becomes a very, very complex picture. And there's no right answer. So. You've got people in the national government who fully recognize the importance of the site. And there's a conservation agency that oversees the cultural management of the site, its heritage. This agency actually is responsible for two sites in Vietnam. This site of Koloa and the Tang Long Citadel that's in downtown Hanoi. Wow. That was the capital. So after the independence, I talk, talked about Ngo Quyen coming and becoming independent. Uh, after the end of the thousand years of the Chinese being there. Um, that kicks off successive dynasties, Viet dynasties, in, in nor the northern part of Vietnam. The, many of them used the Tang Long area as the capital, the imperial capital. Um, so you've got this agency that's responsible for all of the, the, the cultural heritage. And they have different views too from what local residents might have about well should i be able to build a garden on top of these walls should we preserve all the walls should we preserve all the rice fields mm -hmm. or should we allow continued development do we build new schools do we build new buildings all of this i mean these are big questions there's no simple answer now when i think about uh the border of the han and their invasion and we finally kicking them out why would they even stop where they stopped and why would they leave how i mean like a country like like i can imagine the united states i i even question this why did the united states just stop at the mexican border today like why didn't they just keep going south and the same with the han and the chinese why didn't they just south and penetrating all the way down to the bottom of the country 
Uh, yeah. So that's a very complicated question too. Uh, I'm happy that you're asking a lot of complicated questions. Um, I, I, this this is, begins to get out of my domain of, of knowledge and expertise because we're dealing with later time periods. But for the Chinese, um, the various Chinese dynasties, I think one simple answer is they may have been very preoccupied with everything that was happening within their own quote-unquote borders. Mm. So things closer to the capital or the central plains. Um, yeah. Conflicts maybe with other areas of the so-called barbarian world. Um, I think they were pushed south because they were interested in gaining access to certain resources, maybe certain landscapes for products, um, ivory, uh, spices, other kinds of materials from this sort of southern latitude, but also ports, maybe areas that they can launch from for shipping and commerce. Once they got that material, once they got access, maybe they didn't need to push further south. They got control over mm -hmm. a lot of these economic interests. Um, the other part of the answer is Vietnam, as I mentioned before, looks like the way it does today because of stuff that happened in more recent centuries. Back then, the Chinese pushed to areas what we consider central Vietnam today. That's about as far as they pushed. Oh. Everything further south wasn't necessarily part of Vietnam, right? There, there were other kingdoms and other societies. Uh, so there were probably competing pressures. And that's probably the reason why you don't see them going even further and further. You know, this uh, Arthurian... Um comparison that you made with the turtle and, and King Arthur and Einzenvung. Uh, why do you think that humans need to have this magical power of vanquishing your enemies through the legends of like the turtle claw or the, the sword? Why, why is that an, an important thing? It's not, it's not grounded or rooted in reality, but why is it showing up in history all over you know the uk britain or vietnam you know happening centuries ago why is it a thing why is it important in human history what's the significance of, of these nations to have like these supreme magical incidences like these weapons that have swords or a, or a turtle claw in like the the legends uh you know the crossbow what 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 is that what's a why do we need that magical element? Yeah. I, 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 there might be a couple of ways to answer that off the top of my head. One is we, we love stories. Humans love stories. We love the, the elements of mystery that might be associated with these stories. And there's a sort of fascination or curiosity that we have. It, it grasps us. It captures our imagination. But the other part of the answer, I think, is it has to do with power. So when we talk about what Excalibur might symbolize or what Anzengbung's crossbow might symbolize, that's power. If you are able to vanquish your enemies, that is something that you have that gives you leverage, that gives you power. And that's tied, at least in my view, to authority. Why is it that some people get to be the king? Why is it that some people get to be in positions of authority and power? It's maybe because they're charismatic or maybe because you've entrusted them. You know, there's a sort of social or political contract or maybe because they took it and you believe in them. 
for various reasons. And maybe in the past, maybe not so much in many contexts of the modern world, but in the past, people in positions of political power were also posi in positions of ideological or religious mm -hmm. power. You believed in them, in their right to be in that position. And so An Zengvung may have had this crossbow because the gods and the ancestors wanted him to have it. And so he is your king. You have to do what he says. Oh. He's legitimately in that seat. And that's why you're not in the seat, but he is. Right. So I, I think there's a sort of imaginative quality to these symbols and these stories. These stories get, you know, passed on. There's a sort of mystique to them, you know, folk tales and, and, and traditions and legends and so forth. But they become part of the corpus. They become part of the legitimacy. So, uh, I think, yeah. Sorry, yeah. I was going to say one more thing about this. There's no accident why we see, for instance, symbols of the past prominently displayed on symbols of authority mm. today. And, and one simple example is you look at the flag of Cambodia. That national flag has the outline of Angkor Wat on it. This yeah. was the glorious episode of Khmer or Angkorian history, the height of its power. Uh, this glorious civilization of the past that was the ancestral part of the current day people in that, in that region. And throughout the course of the 20th century, I find fascinating that every different regime that comes into power, every different government, they use the same symbol for their various flags. That's not an accident. There is an appeal, a clear appeal to that distant past. So that, that's how I would answer that question. What a great answer. You know, and, and when I think about it, it's really like divine appointment. You can't really argue with divine appointment. You know? <laughs> it's, it's, it's hard to. <laughs> it's hard to. Yeah, it's hard to. And there's no proof. There's no proof. You just have right. to go with it. It's like religion. Right. But when you start talking about faith, then, you know, it is faith. And it's hard to find material proof for it. In some cases, by definition, you don't find material proof for it. <laughs> yeah. In relation to Vietnamese history, how much do you know about the Korean side of your, your heritage? I know much less um, about the Korean side. And it's something I'm trying to remedy. I, I have interests in Korean history and in Korean archaeology that I'm starting to explore. Um, because it is something that I, I personally I feel obligated to, but I'm also fascinated by it. And I think there are clear connections because what's happening with Vietnam or nor the northern part of Vietnam at that time, uh, 2000 years ago, there are similar things that are happening in the Korean Peninsula with the expansion of Sinitic civilization and influence. So I think it's interesting to think about the possible connections, how you might compare various societies resisting or reacting to or appropriating elements of this imperial power. I think they're very fruitful projects that can happen. People have started doing this and I'd love to, to continue on this kind of work as well. To me, that's a fascinating thing to think about. And when you throw in the fact that there are interesting parallels even in the 20th century. So I, we began this conversation today with my saying that I was a Cold War mutt um, those kinds of comparisons can be made even in the 20th century, how the Korean Peninsula got carved up, how Vietnam got carved up by outside powers, 
and these kinds of histories, they're very complementary. There's a lot of similarity. And that's probably why my parents, when they met, they were drawn to each other. Now, speaking of similarities and connections, there exist, uh, I've heard friends of mine talk about a king or some military figure from Vietnam that migrated to Korea and worked itself himself up to some major uh, figure in Korea and created his own dynasty. And the Lee name uh, is a, uh, a part of that whole story. Do you know much about that? I, I don't know much about it. it. It is I've heard about this and it's intriguing. It's very, very interesting. My understanding is uh, it, it's, it's one of the descendants of the first Lee King, um, maybe a prince or something like that, was there was turmoil in, in quote-unquote Vietnam at the time, right? So this we're talking about 13th century, I think it is. So as the Lee house is being replaced, um, I think this king or the prince and the family leave the area and seek refuge elsewhere. And I think ultimately they end up in the Korean Peninsula and they're welcomed by the local Korean dynasty um, into the land and the family then stays. And, and my understanding, of, this is particularly fascinating. My understanding is the descendants of that family, the episode, they've been recording their lives within the wow. peninsula. And now they, they are still recognized in Korea as well as in Vietnam as being the descendants. I think that I'm not an expert on this. This is much later in time than, than, than my work. Uh, but that's my understanding, which I find very, very interesting. That is fascinating. That, and how many, how many hundreds of years ago did it happen? This is um, maybe like 800 years ago. 800 years ago. And you're saying that they've kept records of whatever that's happening in their family? That's my understanding. Yeah, that the, 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 the descendants have been keeping track of the generations. That they can trace back to that that uh, arrival. If that anybody's if anybody's listening out there, if any audience member knows of any academics that are studying this particular phenomenon, we would like to have him on the show to speak with Nam and I. Nam, oh, I'd love to talk about it. We would tack <laughs> person. We're <laughs> we just go crazy, go ham on him or her. Yeah, that, that would be fascinating. That would be fascinating. That would be amazing. I mean, if there was like records 800 years of like uh the descendants keeping um a journal of like all of the things that are happening yeah so i i, I want to say i saw my, my mother was the one who actually brought this to my attention originally and then I, I i did a little bit digging i didn't have a lot of time to do this but i i think i found a couple of um, articles that talked about some of the family members the descendants of the modern day who are actually um, going back and doing things in Vietnam. So there's a, there's a connection now between the two, the two modern countries that is related to this very interesting historical uh, episode. What are some magical moments that you've had in your career or your research journey so far? Hmm. Um, 
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. I, I, th- I think that that original excavation, the field project at Colois. This was back in 2007. So I, I, I mentioned I was there in 2005 for the first time. Yeah. And I was given this sort of invitation to come back if I can raise funding support for it. I, I suspect my colleagues thought they'd never see me again because here I was, this grad student with big ideas. They, they were probably thinking, let's see if he actually comes through, right? Maybe th- this is too difficult yeah. to do. Um, but it took me two years, and I, I was able to find uh, funders, supporters, um, and I'd like to acknowledge, uh, especially the, the Luce Foundation, the Henry Luce Foundation. They funded um, the first excavation for us. So I was a grad student. I came back. I came knocking on the door and said, I'm, I'm back, and I have support now. But when we embarked on that first field season, um, it, it dawned on me. It, it started to hit me how... I was doing something that I never dreamed I would mm. be doing. And it was personally connected to my identity, to a part of my identity that was sort of buried. Uh, forgive the pun here. Yeah. Um, but sort of it was, it was tucked away because, you know, as I told you at the beginning, when you asked me what it means to be Vietnamese, my conception of that was from the lens of an immigrant, of an American, of a former refugee, whatever. But it wasn't connected to the actual homeland. So to be able to go back there and work on a facet of history that was related to my mother's ancestry, to my relatives, and and to that part of my identity that I hadn't really thought that much about, that that to me was a magical moment. Mm. To be able to not only participate, but to actually dig, to excavate, pieces of history that, you know, that were put into the ground, that were made two plus thousand years ago and then placed into the ground. And then we are unearthing them for the first time yeah. and, and touching these objects, right. That, are, that our ancestors were part of that. That was a magical moment. Now, how does the government control what's coming out of the earth on your excavation? Do they say tag it, Give it to us. We're putting it in our museum. Who's overseeing the property that's coming out of this project? Uh, so th- the way I would answer this is it's not necessarily the government. It is the various um, institutions that are responsible for cultural heritage and archaeological research. 
So that would be the, the agency that I mentioned earlier, the Conservation Agency, the Institute of Archaeology, um, some of the local provincial museums and so forth. So there, there's a variety of people who participate mm -hmm. in these projects. We get permission from a lot of different people up and down before we even start. Oh, wow. So it's, it's, it's one thing for me to have funding, but I can't do anything until I have permission. So my colleagues and I, we're, we're collaborators. We co-direct all of these projects and we figure out um, what kinds of questions need to be answered that everybody's interested in. And we get permission from people to do the field work, to try to answer those questions. In doing so, there are materials that come out of the ground. Um, the bulk of that material does not leave the country. I don't take it back anywhere. I don't bring it to the U.S. I might bring some things here and there for analysis, but the bulk of the artifacts and materials stay in country. They're uh, examined in country. Um, they are documented, they're cataloged, and then they're stored or put on display mm. in museums. And some of those museums might be uh, in Hanoi or at Koloa or in some of the provincial museums, or maybe on the national level or maybe more on the local community level. But they are part of the cultural heritage of the country itself, and it stays there. Now, the sensitive topic of a Chinese invasion in modern times is probably on a lot of more on the diaspora's thinking. I don't know why. It, it just feels like it shows up more in people that I talk to in the Vietnamese diaspora. You know, and you said something earlier that kind of jogged my or triggered my my thinking on this is like Chinese and the Vietnamese are very different cultures but if there was an invasion you know and we were looking at each other two three hundred years from now how different are the people and what are the differences what are the major differences that would make life unbearable or uncomfortable or is it just really just people just conquering other people that makes it uncomfortable what i guess i'm exploring that dark theme of if vietnam you know is contending you know we're always contending with invaders because you know just the proximity but really at the end of the day what are we really worried about as a war specialist right as somebody who thinks about this stuff yeah i suppose it depends on the nature of that quote-unquote conquest um if we're talking about for administrative purposes, for taxes or something like that, that's that might be one animal. But if we're talking about very restrictive rules that might be put in place that change the way you live, that affect uh, your freedoms or your privileges or that begin to strip away some of that, or in some cases, maybe even strip away elements of your identity. Mm that's when things are very different, right? So it kind of depends. Um, uh, my suspicion is when, when the, the texts say that the Han come in at 111 BC, it's more of a sort of superficial arrival and things don't change too much, not yet at least. There might be some, there might be more and more of a presence. Maybe there are migrants from the north that are coming to live in colonial sorts of administrators and so forth. But things begin to change maybe within a century or two. And th this goes back to the, the Chum sisters, because it was probably around that point that things became a little bit too oppressive, that people started to say, no, 
we're not going to take this anymore. We're actually, it's, it's not, it's not worth it for us to just let things stay the way that they are. We'll take a risk. Uh, you know, we'll risk life and limb to change things. Right. And you see these revolts happening. Um, so what's, what's similar, what's different. I, I, it goes back to what we we're saying earlier, no borders that we see today existed 2000 years ago. So there is probably a lot of similarity, different cultural practices that permeated this entire area, the kinds of food that people ate, maybe even the religions that they practiced, maybe even the ways in which they identified themselves or the languages that they might've spoken, the customs, there might've been a lot of overlap. So when you have a, 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 a new government coming in, maybe that doesn't change things too much, not at, at the beginning, but once things begin to get right down to the nitty gritty mm. and they're saying, well, you can't worship this God anymore, or you can't you know, trade with these people anymore, or your name is now this, mm. that's when people start to have a big problem. I mean, I can, I can tell you my own experiences, my father's experience in, in Korea in particular, um, he, he was uh, very young when the Korean War started. But even before that, the Japanese were there. Right. They had annexed the peninsula decades before his birth. And he remembers growing up and having been assigned a Japanese name, being forbidden from speaking Korean in school. And all kinds of Korean identity, forms sure. of Korean identity being stripped away not only stripped away, but then being downplayed. Like that is, uh, that is beneath the rest of us. So you are not a first-class citizen, maybe not even second, whatever it, right. You are sort of the bottom of the barrel. And when you think about that kind of conquest, that's when people start to push back. Um, so there might be very similar ways in which people live, you know, how they ate things, how they viewed the world, how they farmed, the kinds of tools that they used, maybe even uh, marriage practices, funeral practices. There might be lots of similarity. But when the political structure starts to take things away and impose restrictions, that's when things change. And, you know, it's always kind of in the back of every Vietnamese person that I, you know, older generation I talk to, they're all terrified of, of a Chinese invasion or, you know, one goes vietnam's next you know this is a, a common thing I, and i don't know how ignorant or how informed that sort of mentality is but it's there and i sometimes i just want to go head on and thank god i have somebody like you now to to really ask that question like what would really happen right like but you're right culturally if you if they take away and they chip away that identity that's when it becomes very uncomfortable right Right. And we can also get into the issues of sovereignty. Right. So um, if if not only are you taking away identity, but you're taking away forms of self-determination, what you can do as a state, um, that that's you might as well be taking away identity as well. Yeah. You're not necessarily taking it out of the hands of the everyday person, but you're taking it out, out of the hands of your leadership. And not everybody's going to be happy about that. Probably a lot of people have a problem with that. And you bring up another natural point. Um, and I talked to my father, Taiwanese, and he brought up a really, you, you kind of touched on it too earlier. Sometimes we think that there's these threats, but inside of their country, they're dealing with so much shit on their, you know, on their own agendas and their own internal struggles and 
political bullshit that they don't have the energy to care about like another invasion and they don't have the resources to go out and, and do this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think maybe if you're looking at uh, on the community level, decisions yeah. that are being made, it, it, it's, it's still complex, but it, it might be easier to, to kind of figure out, well, here are the different views and different players. in the population and did we get cut off there yeah we did a little bit okay okay let me make sure we're still recording okay yeah we are okay okay um i don't know where we got cut off and i don't know where you want to pick up um you were asking me about um decision making Oh, I was talking about my father-in-law and you touched upon it, uh, how Chinese uh, society, you know, they, they probably are dealing with so much internal life and they don't have the resources or the mindset to really go out and, and take care of Taiwan or Vietnam. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know how many, how much, how much of those fears are, are well-founded or not. I think there is some legitimacy some validity to some of these concerns that 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 I think is 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 there but at the same time how likely is it that china poses a direct threat to vietnam that i think is debatable um, there might be elements of security concern and we can point to some of the disputes over the south china sea for instance or the eastern sea from the Viet vietnamese perspective mm -hmm. Um, the Spratly Islands and others skirmishes that have happened. Um, but it, it is really hard to say on a day-to-day -day level from year to year, maybe there's not too much to think about. But we, we talked about this earlier today. Um, the countries are going to look very different 100 yeah. years from now. So there is a possibility that there is some kind of major upheaval or change that will happen at some point. Maybe that's related to conflict, or maybe it's related to other mechanisms. I'm going to leave this next question sort of intentionally open for your interpretation, but where do you see Vietnam in the next decade? Um, it's hard for me to comment directly on that because I, I don't study the, the contemporary aspects of Vietnam, not nearly as much as I would like. Mm. And my experiences are very limited to, you know, my interactions with these archaeological projects, these historically oriented projects. But I guess I can speak to it from the perspective of my, my impressions as I've been going to Vietnam um, for the last uh, 17 years or so. I see it a country and, and a, a lot of people with hope and optimism about what the future holds. Every time I go back, things look different. Things change. Yeah. It, there's so much development. And there seems to be so much openness to that change that I, I, I want to say maybe wasn't there or that kind of openness wasn't there a couple decades back uh, or several decades back. But nowadays, it seems that every time I go back, there are more and more uh, signals of 
development, local development, foreign investment, all kinds of change. And it's kind of, it floors me when I go. So where I see Vietnam in, in the future, I, I, I would be sort of optimistic about the kinds of changes that are happening. Now, I can't comment on what things are like for everybody in Vietnam. It's a very yeah. dynamic, complex country with different communities, different ethnicities, different ethnic identities, dozens of different ethnic identities. So I can only speak to that like any country, uh, we have problems and warts and you know there are things that need to be resolved and worked through. But uh, I'm sure a lot of uh, my, my colleagues in other social sciences know a lot more about that than I do. Um, but that's sort of my, my general perspective. What is next for you on a sort of um, excavation? You know, is there another project? Is there something that is uh, calling out for you or something that is... Uh, out in the future that you're like, I wish I could tackle that project. I've got a laundry list of things. Um, and we don't have to get into all of them, but I, I mentioned some of them already. So for me, the comparative stuff with Korea, I, I find fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, there's a, there's also a ton of work that still needs to be done at the law. And I, I, I'm certainly hoping to be a part of that. I'm, I know that my colleagues, whether I'm there or not, they will continue that work. There will be future generations of researchers who, who will embark on these projects. But there are some big questions that still remain. So we, we might have some ideas about the time period when some of those monumental features came into being and the origins of this city and the possible connections to this kingdom. But for me if we could find more evidence of the people that were living at Gaulois at that time, um, cemeteries, settlement sites, residences, the, a, a tomb of a, a royal figure, for instance, maybe even Anzung Rung, if he existed, um, those kinds of things would be fascinating, would be vital mm. to augmenting our understanding of this very important part of Vietnamese history. Um, we're also doing other things there like um, examining um, new data sets like LIDAR. Um, these are uh, aerial imagery um, about the site, maybe giving us clues about other walls that may have existed because the legends say that there were nine. And we see three. Conventionally, people talk about these three, but there may be more. And we've started to see evidence of this. Um, my colleagues and I are working on this. We haven't published this yet, but... If, if we do find strong support for that, that's just another yeah. piece, another pillar in the story of Anzang Bung, because maybe those tales were accurate. Because we do find artifacts, light crossbow materials, the bolts, the triggers, and so forth. So elements of the fairy tales, they do exist. There's mm. material support for them. We just don't know if all of that is 100% accurate. Um, so that that's sort of at Gaulois. I'm also very interested in... Um, parts of my own family history. And this has to do with um, 
my parents and what they've lived through. This connected to the Cold War, to World War II, to resistance against the French, and so forth. All of the stuff in both areas. For the last decade or so, I've been documenting their stories, recording them. And I'm, I'm hopeful that at some point their stories can be told in some kind of format. This is still being worked out. Uh, my parents, uh, thankfully, are still around and they, they can continue to participate in this ongoing family project. Um, but I'm hopeful that at some point we're going to be able to, to put that story out there because I don't think it's a very common one. Hmm. You know, a lot of us have stories about conflict and war and maybe even refugee experiences. A lot of Vietnamese um, people in the diaspora have very similar stories. But what I find interesting about this is, is you know, my, my father's part of that as well, because he, he's lived through two wars. He lived through the Korean conflict and the Vietnam conflict. And then for, for them to flee as refugees, this time uh, together, but it was not the first time in their lives that they fled as refugees. Um, I don't know if you know this, but we've, we left by helicopter off the USAID building in April, April 29th of 75. So this is Operation Frequent Wind. This is the Marine operation to yeah. evacuate people out of Saigon. We were on one of those Hueys that got out of there. Um, I don't remember any of this, obviously, but I heard about all these stories and I've been documenting them. The, as you probably can tell, they've shaped me, right? They've influenced yeah. me to make decisions in my life. Um, and now as, as a sort of homage to my, my parents, um, I feel as though those stories need to be told. And that's the project that I'm hopeful to be working on next. Well, I hope to, you know, one day get a copy of that story and, and read it. You've sent me some pages uh, that you wrote. And they're fascinating, and I hope that you'll finish it. But another thing that I hope, then I, you know, we've talked about it too, is perhaps you can record your mom and dad right now, and eventually cut it up into a podcast, yeah. and you know, be a companion piece because a lot of people don't read nowadays, and they listen to Audible and audiobooks. So the option of having, you know, the ability to read it or to have them speak some words, and you know, that's a big part of. Vietnamese history alongside the Korean uh, history in your life and, you know, be fascinating to be able to um, listen to all of it uh, coming from your dad's mouth into our listeners ears. Yeah. 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 I, 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 I love that idea. I think I hadn't, it hadn't occurred to me until you and I talked about it and I, I think it's a fantastic idea yeah. and it's actually, I've, I've, spoken to them about this and we're thinking about now next steps to start audio and maybe even video recording some of these accounts these vignettes to complement what i've written down and recorded um and maybe who knows maybe there's a podcast in the future somewhere i, I don't have yeah. any experience with that i've been on this side of the interview never on the other side or never right, on right. the production side so um I, I'd, I'd have to kind of muddle through that but i think that'd be a fantastic way to start you, you know, as somebody who's lost their father, um, I really regret not having the know-how at the time. You know, he died about 11 years ago. Mm. I didn't know at the time how to do all this stuff. You know, had I got, I mean, if this was around when he was alive, yeah. I think I would have gotten a good, you know, I would probably sit down with him for a good month to, to really drill down on, 
because now i mean you know his brother just died last year that was the last guy in five of five siblings of that side and we cousins are nobody has history to the story or the lineage of that that family you know the last guy died and he they were all really badass guys you know amazing uh human beings and i really wish that you know really wish i could have recorded at least one of the guys like because you know i want to know more about my grandfather you know or their grandfather actually their grandfather was i think full-on chinese uh yeah full-on chinese from china and you know wow wow you know just to to i heard about him a lot growing up because he you know their father died so their grandfather took over responsibilities of raising them while their mother went out and you know had to work so anyway that, that my point is you know i i wish that um at some point i could have re- recorded all of those guys and to have their voice in my ears you know and yeah. their voice in my children's ears yeah yeah i mean those the, the little bits you've just shared are are, are I, I find fascinating it would have been fascinating to hear more about yeah. like those experiences what what motivated certain people to go places right to to, to migrate to a new area and what but, life was like when they did that um, yeah. the the little I, that i know was my my, my great grandfather had uh, you know they shaved the first part of their hair off and the back was long they yeah. had hair and he was a groundskeeper for the um i think it was like the governor of gangta or whatever that they're called he was the groundskeeper and he noticed how educated uh the the people in the area uh, of the of the it, I don't know how to say it. It's the the inner circle. How educated? So, the this lawn law, um, this groundskeeper made sure his his son got the best education, and that kid went on to become like the chief of police. And then all the the sons were in the police. Uh, so there was this this really interesting story of of you know that family, but it's gone now because we just didn't have that understanding of you know yeah. that stuff is gonna go and it's gone and i wish yeah yeah i uh, thank you for sharing that 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 is very it's very sobering to hear but it's also inspiring because uh, i can see the the need the need to to participate in these these kinds of endeavors and to carry them out now yeah. right and, not and you, waiting and you think you know your dad but wait till you turn on the the the, the recording <laughs> equipment you know, you're going to know 30, 40% more and it's going to jog his memory and he's going to just, it'll be an outpouring of details yeah. and facts. And then you can just use hours and hours of that to cut into a, a to a podcast. Yeah. So, I, I, I love that idea. So yeah, I'm going to make that a mission. Uh, that, that's going to be something we're going to work on. Yeah. I, I, I mentioned it to them already and they're excited about that possibility. So I'm going to, take a crash course in, in recording and editing and um, potentially putting it out there uh, and broadcasting it yeah. as a podcast. Okay. So actually, Ken, I, I was curious. Uh, you had asked me about my my view of being Vietnamese. I, I was curious how you would answer that question and also what your relationship to Vietnam is today. I've been asked that question several times, and it, and and my answer is it's it's constantly evolving and constantly changing, because I am uh, very open now to 
the definition or the meaning of what it means to be Vietnamese because it it really is just a, a culmination of your experiences, you know, and it could be it could be very German, it could be very French, it could be very Australian or very American. Uh, there's these lens that we put on to the meaning of what we think is is being Vietnamese, but oftentimes it's you know. So I like to keep it wide open. Yeah, similar perspective to the one that I that, that I share. I think yeah. it's important to have that wide lens as wide as possible because there are so many of us that have a connection to the the culture, to the identity, and we're not all the same. We all have various identities and various reasons we connect. So uh, yeah, and 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 between my brother and I, we're very different. You know, here's two brothers that were born, you know, basically to the same parents, grew yeah. up the same. But I think because he was born in Vietnam, left when he was a year old, I think that sort of did something to him where it's like he doesn't really care about his. There's no question about his identity. He's like, I'm Vietnamese. I happen uh, to be moved to, Viet to to the United States. And then, you know, he just he doesn't need to question it. Uh, yeah. I don't think he has a problem with me questioning mine, but I I have a, a very different, um, I have a very shameful past, I think, because I felt ashamed growing up and I grew mm -hmm. up, uh, you know, being somebody who was born here on one level proud of it and then questioning why I was proud of it at one point. Mm -hmm. Why am okay. I proud okay. of being born in the United States? It makes no sense. Oh, okay. Cause I'm ashamed of being Vietnamese. And you know, so yeah. that begins to open up like a Pandora's box of like questions. And today I will allow it to linger around me so I can use it as fuel to ask questions because if I repress it or if I make it go away, uh, in an unhealthy way, um, I, I feel like I'll lose my curiosity. So I'll let the yeah. sort of like fester and linger and it kind of for, for yeah. inside of my mind. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I like that. I, I think I'm, I'm, I, I have very similar perspectives because it, it is, there is a sort of pride, but also shame in it. And a lot of that is imposed upon us by the society around us. Sure. Sorts of stereotypes and expectations that others of different ethnicities and different ancestries have their perceptions of of asians their perceptions of vietnamese of, of others right and that, that that that's symptomatic of of american society in general yeah and the, the views of others but um it's a very complicated world that we live in um for many of us and i i i, I appreciate your your view about this being a, a pandora's box once you start going that down that road and you allow all of these things that keep coming to your head and you explore you pull up those threads and you figure out why is it that i react this way why is it that i feel this way it opens up all of these other questions and i, I think it's important it's important especially in today's american yeah, society it really is to talk about this um and it for me it was interesting being in vietnam doing research because uh i wasn't viewed as i said i was viewed as as, as somebody who might be a foreigner who maybe was japanese but i would sometimes use that to my advantage you're not truly vietnamese that's right so that's why when i make mistakes if i forget to say something if i forget to go in the, the right order of respect it's because of my American side, or yeah. I blame it on my Korean 
culture or I blame it on whatever. But there are cards that we play and they can be tied to identity and identity is so fluid, right? And that, that's what I think we have to be open to this. So I like what you said a little bit earlier about it be constantly evolving for you, this form of identity, your notion of Vietnamese. Yeah. I, when I was 17, I got this tattoo of Vietnam on my shoulder. You know, and I was uh, just coming into the Marine Corps and there's all these white corn-fed guys, big guys that I hung out with, you know, awesome men that, you know, that I learned a lot from and, you know, became good friends with. But I still had this very insecure feeling of Vietnam. And I think a lot of friends that had friends that were gang members at the time had these tattoos. And so it was a form of of pride but then i had to question that like why are you proud to be born in the united states and then why would you be proud to have the tattoo of vietnam on your shoulder so all of this never made any sense to me until i you know really start to explore all you know these themes and um all of it is silly if you think about it you know um this pride of being born in the united states is a silly thing this (laughs) tattoo and and then i questioned myself about the removal of the tattoo. I'm like, wait a minute, can't can't do that because removing the tattoo would signify a certain shame that is like, now you're really not dealing with the shame. Yeah, yeah, no, I I, I understand. So I'll share with you, so my brothers, my younger brothers, they were both born in the US, they were born in Chicago and they're given names. They have Korean names. Uh, just like my name. So in, in Korea, my name would be Kim Nam Chul. Um, but they, they go by their American names, Tom and David. I have a, my, so I had a Catholic name that was given to me and I could have adopted it as my sort of Westernized American name, but I didn't want to. And I remember as a kid, my parents maybe explored this possibility with me. And I remember telling them, this is the name you gave me. Wow. I'm not, I'm not changing that name. That's the name my parents gave me. I need to own it with pride, whatever it is. So I remember people questioning my name, maybe some kids making fun of the name, whatever the case might be, mispronouncing it. It's unfamiliar, right? But in my mind, that comes with the territory. You know, whatever it is, that's your identity. You're proud of it. It's your family heritage. You stick with it. Um, and I'm glad I'm, I'm at, at this stage of my life. I'm glad that as a child, I made that, made that decision. decision. Yeah. Um, now, I'm not saying it's, it was the right decision or not. But for me personally, I'm glad that that was the decision. Yeah. I mean, at, at such an early age to have that mindset, it's like... Uh... You know, and I'm sure it doesn't sound like you grew up around a lot of Asians or Vietnamese or Korean people. You you know, it was a mix. Yeah, it was uh, in Chicago, and there were a lot of people uh, from different cultures, different backgrounds. Was your relationship to Vietnam today? Wow, that's a, nobody's asked me that. What is my relationship to Vietnam today? Pure love. I have a lot of love for Vietnam, but still. There's still a distance, and I'm not just physical distance, but there's still a, a longing to be back in the mothership, right? Mm-hmm. To be accepted, to be, you know, to be known as some 
son of Vietnam that can make the 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 idiomatic jokes and understand all of the fine details of like when the women are sitting in their nyakrao, they're, they're, they're peeling vegetables. And I can jump into that and be a part of that. Or the guys are smoking out um, on, uh, in, in, in the dinner table and they're smoking cigarettes and sitting with those guys and just, just being able to be one with that, you know? Yeah. All of that is... Or when I meet a group of corporate guys doing business in the Bay Area and they have a certain way of, about them to be a part of that. You know, so mm. this idea of being Vietnamese is like, as long as I go anywhere in the world and there's Vietnamese people and there's okay. one or more, or there's a group of them that I can feel, you know, this identity with, uh, with that group. Um, and I, I think I work towards that and I don't mind working towards it until the day I die because that's a, it's a, it's, it's a source of joy and energy, good energy for me. I, I love it. I love yeah. um, everything, the good, the bad, the warts, the, you know, everything that's, yeah. you know, the Vietnamese culture. I love and adore. Yeah. That's an awesome, awesome. answer. That, that, the, the first part of it actually jogged something in my head when, um, when I first started doing field work in Vietnam, I had some grasp of the language, but because I was so out of practice, people were talking way too fast. Yeah. I couldn't understand what they were saying. And actually part of what you were saying jogged my memory about something. When you were talking about the ladies in the field, peeling mm -hmm. the vegetables, a lot of the, uh, the laborers who work with us on our excavations actually are women, local farmers and their families. And I remember during our very first excavation, I, my Vietnamese was still coming along. So I grew up talking with my mom, but everybody was talking way too fast. I couldn't understand what they were saying. So I, I was there for months. The first few weeks, I couldn't understand what anyone was saying, and they knew that. So they knew me as the foreigner. And I was always wondering, what are they talking about? Because they were excavating, but the whole time they were chatting, laughing and chatting continuously, nonstop. Uh, these women and after a while i started to realize that they were talking about vegetables they were talking about their kids and they were talking about me <laughs> and they were making jokes about everything so when my language started to pick because every night after the field i'd go back and at the hotel i was staying at i would sit in the lobby and talk to the staff they helped me with my Vietnamese. I helped them with English. So everybody was benefiting. Mm -hmm. My Vietnamese was getting better and better. So one day I just, I, I, I bided my time and I just busted out and I, I, I talked to them back and I joked with them about how I understand everything they're saying, <laughs> about how they're joking. I need to take a Vietnamese wife and all this stuff and how much they were always curious, like how much money do you think he's making working here overseas? What do you think they're paying him to do this archaeological work? Do you think he, he would take a Vietnamese wife? So all this stuff, I knew they were saying it. So at that point, I just busted out in Vietnamese and answered all these questions. And I, they were shocked. But at that point, it broke the ice, right? It, wow. It was just joke, joke, joke from then on. And did you feel Vietnamese at all? At, I think that's when... After things, that? Yeah, that's when... I mean, I, I, I never thought about it this way. But if I wanted to pinpoint the, 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 the slippery slope to feeling more accepted... That probably was part of it. Once, once you start joking with people, 
in that language. I think they accept you and they, they're comfortable. The, the ice is gone. Everyone's comfortable. There's a sort of proximity, right? It's not elusive anymore. You're, you're, you're next to each other and you can say things to each other. And sometimes the, the, the local idioms, as you say, they come out and you, you can understand them. And if you don't, they're open to telling you, well, this is what it really means. Yeah. This is how we say things, right? And this is what we mean when we jab at you. You're one of us. And I think that kind of acceptance, mm -hmm. I, I really began to appreciate it because of episodes like that. Yeah, that's the beauty of it. Especially if you're like, you know, you've been growing up and living outside of Vietnam forever. And then there's the vegetable circle that's happening on the floor. <laughs> exactly. You know, the vegetable picking circle that happens on the floor of, of some house that you go to. And all like these ladies, because it, it happened when I was growing up in, in L.A., uh, ah. There was these women that would come from Vietnam and they would stay at my parents. You know, we had uh, my mom and dad uh, shared a house that they bought with four other families, uh, siblings. And so they bought this big 13 room house. And as the siblings would move out, my mom and dad would pay them their share uh, as the prices went up. And then they own this house. And then all these families would just come over, cousins and uncles. And so they would have these vegetable circles um, on the floor. And you would hear them bust gossip and my brother and I would fly like, you know, we would fly right into the circle and just sit there and listen to these ladies gossip. And that's where my fascination, my love and my brother and I will mimic these ladies with each other now. You know, we'll, we'll say <laughs> terms like, you know, that means like, you know what I heard, you know, you know what I heard, you know, so. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So those things that's are awesome. cool to me. Yeah. Very, very awesome. Um you know, memories. And, you know, when I go back to Vietnam now and, you know, I see uh, family members that are doing that, you know, I just slide right in and then just shoot the shit. And yeah. then, you know, I'm six foot tall and I'm like massive. And then I sit with this, this circle and then I, I try to get into the gossip circles and, you know, ask funny questions and stuff like that. And just try to just be a part of it, even though I know I'm not really, but it just feels good to kind of know that for hundreds of years, like there are people in our families this this is the, the way we this is the way we lived and to be a part of yeah. that is such a a tangible experience for me yeah there's a connection there's a thread yeah. and it's it, thread. It, it's it's humbling to be to know that you're part of that mm -hmm. right? right it goes all the way back to how many however many generations ago and it continues through you yeah right? if you can be a part of that if you can appreciate that you become part of that thread to pass it on to the next generation. Yeah, it's a deep appreciation for me. Like if I walk into an aunt's house and there's like seven of them, you know, and they're working to, to prepare a meal for like our families that, that are getting together, th there's this comfort of walking into a house like that, knowing that these vegetable circles are happening and they're sitting around peeling uh, fruits or something and they're just sitting and gossiping. Oh my God, that, <laughs> that kind of stuff for me is, you know, uh, up there along with me, having you know sessions with you know good friends of mine that uh, that i go back to vietnam it's all yeah. a delightful experience yeah well thank you for answering my question for sharing that you know nam i want to thank you for coming on today um it, it's always a, a breath of fresh air to hear ancient um you know facts about uh, the vietnamese culture and I, like I tell most of the guests that come on, I really wish that, you know, you at uh, some point in the future, beyond the Fong and, and, and Tuan Le episodes, to reach out when you have new things to share with us. 
I'd be happy to do that. I, um, I'm, I'm very glad we got the chance to meet and to know about each other because now I feel as though there will be opportunities for us to, to grow yes. from this, this uh, relationship. Um, so I, I would, I would welcome that opportunity. I, I would come back. So I would let you know if there are any updates, I'd be happy to come back on and talk about them. Wonderful. Nam. Thanks again. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Vietnamese with Kenneth Wynn. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran. Special thanks to Jane Wynn, Catherine Wynn, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at the Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcast. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.